But I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ around this globe of ours. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Artist at Work podcast. I'm your host, Will Jobin. This is episode three. We're going to get into it. Into what exactly? The art practice. The uh, overall confusion that occurs, especially in the early stages when you're trying to figure out and develop an art practice. It's not obvious what's going to work, and it's not obvious what is the right medium to be working with. Sometimes you find a medium of art which works before you find a way to really express it, and sometimes you just sort of need to express something and you'll use whatever medium you have access to at the moment. So having a willingness to just get started and explore and do the best you can with what you have is advice I'm giving because it's also something I'm trying to do myself in all areas of my own art practice and it's finding a way to work around any obstacles and also figuring out if the obstacles are real and external real and internal or entirely perceived and so a personal example would be I sort of perceived there to be an obstacle to me starting a podcast because I didn't have like the the big standard microphone setup that I see in all the podcasts that I watch didn't have the big headphones so that was sort of a perceived barrier because then I started branching out looking at other podcasts and I realized not every podcast has the big sure microphone the sort of standard podcast microphone setup some people were doing it with just a a lav mic and so I decided I well I have a lav mic that I'm using for music in wild places so I can use it for a podcast and well I don't have a nice camera but I do have a cell phone which has a pretty good camera so I can set that up and we can get rolling and so that's an example of a perceived barrier where I had sort of convinced myself I could not enter and begin the podcasting journey because I didn't have the right gear but it turns out I had all the gear I needed to get started it just wasn't perhaps the optimum gear it wasn't the ideal situation but if you wait around for the ideal circumstances before you start an art practice the chances that you get started are very slim and so it's really important to get started and some people sort of approach an art practice out of desperation like they need to express something and they don't have the tools to do so and so it's just sort of like make make whatever you can with whatever you have to express your emotions and so for me that started out in music with just sort of freestyle lyrics and that allowed any sort of creative expression to just happen 
without tools. I didn't have to record anything. I didn't have to document anything. I could just be creative and express what I needed to express. And so that practice was something which I sort of needed out of desperation because I needed to express all that I was going through at the time and I needed some method of communicating with myself and others. And it just sort of happened to be music. And then over time I developed it and started to invest in different tools so that I could start recording the music I was making. And it's been continuously growing, but it is that engagement with the foundational practice, which needs to start. And you really have to be fluid, in, especially in the early stages. You have to be willing to make a lot of pivots not feel like you have to perfectly identify everything about the art practice from the beginning because it's probably not going to happen like that. So get into something, start expressing yourself in some medium, and then maybe along the way you'll find, well, you know, I thought my medium was going to be drawing, but actually it turns out I really like watercolors. And so you start, you start out with just a small set of watercolors and a few small pieces of paper and you can sort of play around and experiment a little bit. And, it's that ability to sort of feeling out the waves a little bit. Like you have to ride the waves. You have to do your best to sort of surf them, but you also have to keep an eye out for other waves within yourself and within the world that may sort of be a better fit for expressing, communicating, articulating, whatever the creative vision might be. And I suppose that's another difficult component is that so many beginning artists don't have the clear creative vision. And for that, sometimes it's helpful to get some inspirational prompts to start out with. And that's something that I've been thinking about myself. Uh, I create prompts for myself at this point for songwriting by coming up with interesting titles, which could be a hook, which could then grow into a chorus. And then once I have that, I can write verses which fit the chorus and the hook and make sense for the title of the song. And so it's that ability to sort of recognize the total work of art I'm trying to create, which is a song. And then how can I break that down into just an inspirational seed, which is easier for me to generate and plant any time where I'm not feeling a full melody or a full song in my head. If I don't have any lyrics immediately coming to mind when I sit down to work on my art practice, that's when I go into my sort of seed bank I look through all the different titles I've been creating and adding to the list over time, sort of read through some, and usually one will jump out at me and sort of connect with how I'm feeling in the moment or be something like, oh yeah, that's something I really wanted to express a few days ago, but I didn't get into it then, I'm gonna get into it now. And so I'm sort of priming my own practice. I'm sort of making it accessible no matter what state I'm in, so if I get to a point in my daily schedule where I've set aside a block of time to work on my art practice. I show up to the place where I work on my art practice and nothing's coming to mind. It's blank page, blank mind, nothing's there. It's then super helpful to have a starting point to generate some of that momentum and to have some direction. And so depending on what your artistic practice is, it's really helpful if you can start creating this sort of growing list of little ideas, tiny little seeds. Just, you have a tiny little seed idea, 
add it to a list. For me, I keep it going on a notes list on my phone, but I also have a paper list. If I'm ever working on my art practice and my phone is turned off and put away, I could still just jot it down super easy, and then I'll add it later on to the phone note list. So I'm constantly accumulating seeds. I'm constantly accumulating new song ideas, and I always have that ability to sort of throw a spark onto a blank page and get started. And for so many people, that is the hardest part. It's that first step where you're trying to figure out where am I going, what am I trying to do. The options are essentially endless, and that can be an overwhelming... Uh, it can be sort of an overwhelming sensation as a creative person when you're showing up to the practice, but then there's nothing to <laughs> express or articulate. Like Sometimes it's just sort of radio silence. So it is something I would highly recommend. It's worked really well for me, and I think it would work well for just about any art practice as long as it's sort of unique to that art practice. Like if you're a painter and you have different ideas of things you might like to paint, it would be helpful to just start generating a list so that if you ever show up to a new canvas, new sheet of paper, empty page, and you don't really have anything stirring your soul in that moment, it's a perfect time to go find a little seed idea, grab one off the shelf, put it down, and start working on it. And it's... It's really sort of a personal journey to cultivate an art practice, but there's definitely a lot that can be learned and shared among creative people. And there are a lot of tips that can be passed along. There are a lot of ideas that can be shared about how to orient and organize the practice. And then when it comes to actually showing up and doing the work, that's where it requires an application of oneself to be disciplined. And now everyone has a different way of being disciplined. Some people are naturally disciplined and they just sort of have to make a commitment within themselves and they'll keep it. Other people may need to tell a friend that they're doing something and then because they told someone maybe that will be the motivation to sort of hold themselves accountable whatever it is for you you have to orient yourself so that you hold yourself accountable show up to the art practice and work in a disciplined nature and in that way you're always generating new art in that way you're always exploring yourself and attempting to articulate what is within you you're attempting to bring it out and sort of form it you're trying to press all of it into a work of art and that is a uh, yeah the discipline piece is interesting because there are days when I don't necessarily feel like practicing art but I still show up and I practice with the discipline like I've I've told myself this is a block period of time that I'm going to work on the art and then I do it and sometimes like it's difficult to get started and I'm not really feeling it but then maybe after I get going for like 15 minutes I'm in it and all of a sudden I could be having these great ideas and it could turn into an incredible song and the only reason that song was created is because I held myself accountable and even though I was feeling resistance or I was feeling tired or whatever the set of circumstances I still decided to show up and practice so you really have to be your own, 
I don't know how to properly phrase that. I don't really want to say you have to be your own boss, but that's kind of what it is. Like, you have to show up to work, and you have to put in the work and sort of learn how to apply yourself to the task at hand, whatever that task may be. And I suppose it's also helpful if you're struggling to build momentum, if there's a certain kind of work or a certain piece of the art practice, which is maybe a little bit tedious or monotonous, a little bit repetitive, sometimes it's helpful to do that work when you're starting out your art practice because it helps just generate some momentum. An example for me would be something like if I'm starting out, I don't have much momentum and I'm trying to build that momentum, maybe I'll preview some songs in progress and I'll look at things that are close to being a full song sheet but not quite there. Maybe they're only one verse away from being there. So I'll read the first verse, read the chorus, maybe there's a second verse, and all right, so it needs a third verse. It's a much it's a much easier task to write a third verse for a song that's already been essentially two-thirds finished than it is to try and generate an entirely new song. And so I can build a lot of momentum and feel really good about myself showing up to practice by just writing that one verse, finishing that song sheet, and then feeling like, wow, I, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm in it. I'm doing the thing. So finding ways of getting into your practice and building momentum, whatever that looks like, it's so important to really be in that, in that flow. Like, you got to get going. For some people, that is perhaps the hardest part whereas for other people it's easy to get going but it's hard to finish and there is something about the sort of idea generation stage which is exciting and sort of uh, ecstatic like when you have this new idea it's like it's, it's sort of thrilling but the whole art practice isn't always that same ecstatic, thrilling experience. And so learning how to balance out the exciting piece with the less exciting piece, sort of bringing them together. And sometimes it's helpful to create almost like a list of objectives so that you can sort of help identify where you are in the stage of your art practice and what you need to do next. And that can help you just stay on track a little bit Ooh. it can help you stay on track to have some clear objectives and it can help you remind yourself to do the things that you maybe don't like doing but are a part of the total practice and so let's see what an example would be for me I mean I enjoy just about all of the music making process I'd say the part I like the least is organizing the digital files on my computer and on my phone I find that to be tedious. I find that to be very low in creative application. Like there's not much creativity happening. It's more like, all right, I have to find out what folder this belongs in. I have to find out what tags I'm giving it so that I can organize my library at a large scale. And then I just have to do it. I have to sort of type in the information, look through all the files, organize all the stuff. and. It's not exciting work, but it is work that has to be done at sort of regular intervals so that I don't get too far behind it because that's something I've learned through experience, that if I let that part of my practice slide for a few weeks, it then turns into a few months, 
and now I have hundreds of files that have not been sorted and it's way more difficult to feel motivated to get into that because it seems like such a big task to sort of complete. For me, it's much easier to approach it in smaller chunks and sort of do that with a greater frequency. So instead of doing that every few months, I do it every few weeks. And instead of having a few hundred recordings, it's like 50 to 100, like 100 max. Because to me, that's just a more manageable, it's a more manageable objective, which feels attainable in one session. And so there's something about that which has been really helpful for me to keep working through the piece of the practice, which I don't really like doing, but is something that I've identified that I need to do. And so if I need to do it and I don't like doing it, I have to find balance so that it's approachable and it's not too much for me to get into it and feel motivated to work on it. And that is something that I had to learn through my own experience, through my own sort of trial and error process of engaging the practice, kind of ignoring the part of the practice I didn't really like, and then feeling what happens as a result. And I've decided that for me it's way better to just sort of keep up with the pacing of creating new music so that I never get too far behind. Because there's that feeling of like, this is just too much of a task to take on right now. There's a feeling of sometimes like the, the next step seems like such a large step to take. It's almost like I just sit there and look at it and think like, I can't do that step. Like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna sort through 700 recordings? Like that's, oh, it's so hard to look at that and then sort of feel motivated to get into it and do it. I don't know, there's just something which seems so much more approachable about, all right, I have 65 recordings to sort through. I can do that. I can easily do that. I can just boom. And then I finish it. And there's something about finishing those objectives. And for some people, like if you get, if you have a, a physical list, which then you get to cross off or check a box or even like rip up a piece of paper and sort of throw it away as your sign of being done. It's essentially like you're creating levels where you get a little bit of inner reward and you can sort of figure out what works best for you. Like maybe you want an actual reward for doing the thing that you really don't like doing in your art practice. And depending on what you're trying to figure out in your total life, like maybe you're, I don't know, let's give a... Let's give an example, like maybe you're trying to eat less sweets, and so you feel like you're sort of depriving yourself of sweets, but you also then offer yourself like a little sweet, like a little piece of candy if you finish a hard objective that you don't really like doing in your art practice. And so that might be a little bit of reward, incentive, which you created for yourself to do the art practice and to engage the piece of it which is most difficult for you. You feel like, well, I, I get this little reward when I'm done. And so it's just sort of another, another piece of motivation to do the hard work that needs to be done. Like whatever you got to do to convince yourself that it's work that needs to be done and whatever you have to do to get into the work and actually finish it. 
you gotta figure that out. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta fine tune your own process and be honest with yourself. Because if you honestly despise a certain part of your practice and you just sort of avoid it, like that's not going to be helpful in the long term. And it's way more helpful to figure out what small reward can you give yourself? Can you sort of, what, what sort of carrot can you dangle out in front of yourself so that you're feeling just a little bit more motivated to do those difficult, monotonous tasks in your art practice? And for me, I get enough reward by tracking the metrics. Like I get a huge feeling of reward when I look back at the calendar for the month and I can see how many songs I made that month. It's like, wow, that is, it's really inspiring, but it's also sort of a, like it cuts both ways because when I have low production months, it like, it's a slap in the face when I actually look at the tally for the total month and it sort of sets in like, wow, what was I doing this month where I really didn't make much art? And then maybe I can think about it like, oh, well, I did this thing and this thing and this thing. And maybe I was just focusing on other areas of my life and that's okay. But maybe I was just avoiding the art practice. And then in that moment, I sort of catch myself like, all right, I need to stop avoiding this part of the practice and I need to do more this month because I didn't do enough last month. And so for me, the reward is to sort of see that... Uh, that level of participation as it accumulates over four weeks. Like there's something really exciting about that to me, which works. And so I feel motivated to finish songs because I know that at the end of the month, I'll see a, a greater total and that will sort of fill me with a sense of joy that like I really did it. I really did it this month. I really applied myself to the task at hand. I did as much as I could to finish the work and for me, that is a reward. And another reward that I give myself is a day off where if I'm sort of off of my sort of day job, which is currently earning enough income for me to survive, if I don't have my day job going on and maybe I don't have any other commitments for the day, if I feel like I've been having a really good month making music, I may just take the day off not think about work, not think about music, go hang out at Barton Springs, soak up the sun, swim a little bit, enjoy the day. Like I sort of treat myself to that little mini vacation where it's like, all right, today I'm just gonna do all the things I really love doing. I'm gonna relax. I'm going to sort of slow down and breathe a little bit. And for me, that's, that's a reward which really motivates me because I know that all right if I do really good work today and tomorrow and the next day well maybe the day after that I don't have my day job scheduled and I can take a break and I can just sort of enjoy the day in other ways and so figuring out what motivates you figuring out what incentive will help apply yourself to the practice and yeah, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with yourself. And for some people, that will be the hardest part of developing their art practice is being honest with yourself. And so the sooner you can cultivate an honest relationship with yourself, the better. Because it's one of those things that sort of has compounding effects. 
where if you sort of lie to yourself in these little ways, like, oh, I'll get around to this thing, which I'm avoiding, like, yeah, I'll get around to it. If you don't ever get around to it, like, you're only fooling yourself when you say you'll get around to it. You're just putting it off to a later day. But eventually, the moment comes where it's a present moment where you have to do the work. So whether that present moment is now or in two weeks, the work happens in the present moment. And so you're better off doing it as soon as possible and then rewarding yourself for doing that work because then you're able to get on to the next work and you're able to keep going and you're not getting hung up with the sort of lie you tell yourself like, oh yeah, I'll get around to it. <laughs> Don't put it off. Don't put it off or delay. I suppose that applies to other areas of life outside of the art practice, which is, again, another huge reason why I absolutely love the practice of art and feel so motivated to help others cultivate their own practice because of the ways in which it has impacted other areas of my life and improved the application of myself in the present moment. It's a really incalculable the sort of rippling connections and effects that have occurred as a result of what I've learned in my art practice. So yeah, I can't recommend it enough. And I guess that's a huge driving force behind the Artist at Work podcast. I really want to do everything I can to put on display my own art practice talk through it and attempt to share it with others in a way that either helps new artists cultivate a new art practice or existing artists perhaps fine-tune their art practice or even established artists who have sort of grown away from their practice for whatever list of reasons or whatever circumstances like maybe you've sort of grown apart from the art practice and it's lost a certain level of vitality and connection so you need to rekindle the flame. Maybe you still have some hot coals of the art practice inside of you, but maybe you need some more logs. You need some more fuel. You need to sort of start out with some sticks again, build up a little flame, and then start adding some larger logs to the fire and sort of reignite that momentum and that flame and... And really anything that I can do to help generate more art in the world, I view as a net benefit for the individual engaging with the art as well as anyone else who has the opportunity to experience that art and receive it in their own life, in their own way, and sort of do everything they can to integrate with that artwork. And there's something which is just so magical to it. And there's... Oh, there's so much, so much. There's so much value to be extracted from a practice of art other than money. Like, oh man. I'm sort of like, (laughs) 
sort of I'm sort of stumbling around my own mind because it feels like there are so many points of value that are received from the art practice. It's like I can't even I can't even pick one to really get into at the moment. I'm just like my mind is just jumping from point to 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 point. Get into an art practice. Like get into an art practice and cultivate it and watch it grow and develop over time and apply yourself with full participation and something which is helpful for me which I keep thinking about and maybe I should start bringing um, books with me for the podcast sessions so that I can pull some ideas from it and talk about it Uh, like a book I've been reading recently Skillful Means by Tartang Tulku it is something which really reminds me that life exacts a cost for less than full participation and so if you think it's better to just not participate and not make any waves in the world like you're somehow better off not doing the thing which is bubbling up inside of you or not expressing it it seems like that is fundamentally untrue in the sense that You're way better off saying something that needs to be said than holding your tongue. And and while we live in a world, I suppose it's sort of a time in our society when a lot of people are just choosing to bite their tongues. Like it's sort of easier to just not say what you actually think sometimes. It's sort of easier to just not rock the boat But as an artist, it is your sole responsibility to accurately represent yourself and say the things, express the things that you really need or want to say, the things you need or want to express. You have to feel free enough to do that. And so you can also develop a private art practice, which is how I started. I sort of convinced myself that I would treat my art practice like Carl Jung's Red Book that it would be my own way of exploring my dreams, my visions, my weird ideas, and I don't have to share it with anyone. Like this can just be my own sort of private creation of art. And that is what allowed me to be truly uncensored and free in everything I did because I sort of convinced myself I wasn't gonna share it with anyone. And here I am, I guess we're, five years later from the start of my art practice and now I'm at a point where I feel maybe I should share the art practice that I've been working on maybe others could extract some benefit from what I've done and I've already extracted benefit from the practice itself and so it sort of feels like extra like like bonus goodness (laughs) bonus beauty uh, in the world for people to encounter and interact with and yeah like now I'm convinced that I should share my art practice but I also recognize that 
cultivating that private practice early on is what gave me a sense of freedom to just anything and everything, fair game. No one's going to see it. doesn't matter. Say, do, whatever it is you want to do. And so that could also be a really helpful orientation to get started. Develop a private practice. You don't need to share it with anyone. And if in a few years you decide, well, maybe I should start sharing with people, then you can. And then you can also decide what you want to share. You don't have to all of a sudden share everything you made. You can sort of pick and choose. Like, well, maybe I'll pick a little assortment of things I've made and I'll share those. And then you can sort of apply a filter if you think it's necessary. If you're trying to sort of articulate a certain idea, if you're trying to represent yourself in a certain way, you can do that at that point. And it's, it's a way in which you're able to filter out your material without filtering out your creative expression. You're just filtering what you sort of share in the world. Now, I think I've reached a point where I'm starting to think it's better for me to share more, sort of err on the side of I don't trust myself to know what is the highest good of what I've made. And so I'm sort of choosing to overshare and share things which I might think are not very good, not very exciting, not very well put together, but someone else might find a little spark in there. Someone else might see it from a different perspective. Someone else might draw a connection with their own personal life in a way that I did not perceive. And that could lead to the sort of ripple effect of beauty in the world, which I was totally unaware of. And so I'm at a point where I sort of don't want the I don't want the judgment of my own mind looking at my past art practice to be the reason why I don't share something. I'd rather I share something that I don't think is very good and then maybe someone enjoys it. Someone finds a little bit of beauty or love in it. And I guess I just don't want to assume that I know what's best. I don't want to assume that I can properly see the good and the bad because in some regards I'm a little bit too close to the artwork and to the overall practice to also be a judge of what's good or what's most good and so I think in the time we're living now with social media it's very low cost to just share sort of the developing practice and to share those small moments those undeveloped pieces those little sketches, those ideas. It's sort of a, it's a great time to be creative and to really be free with that creative expression and sharing because there's so much material constantly being shared in the world that, I don't know, there's almost like a, there's a feeling of less pressure because the odds that people will see it is so low. <laughs> And I realize some people may be sharing because they want it to be seen, and then maybe they feel put down because it's not seen by the amount of people they were hoping for. But I think it's much better to be at a place where you're sort of unconcerned about the number of people who pay attention to your art or receive it in a meaningful way, 
It's much more important that you develop the practice and the habit of making and sharing your art, sort of overcoming those those feelings of resistance within yourself, identifying them, learning how to sort of work through it. And it's almost like you're cutting a path through the wilderness. And then over time, you'll get better at just being able to walk the path between making the art and sharing it with much more ease and you don't feel like you have to navigate through all the resistance. You've already sort of cut a trail and you've improved that trail by developing the habit of making and sharing your material. And so then when all of a sudden more people start encountering your art, you've already developed a healthy habit of making and sharing your art in such a way that you're not really concerned or thinking about the number of people who encounter your art, you're still just doing the habit which you've developed. You're still just walking that trail through the wilderness. And the trails become more improved and easier every time you walk it and improve it a little bit. And so for me, the biggest form of resistance that I've felt is definitely sharing the art. And when I really pick apart what the resistance is, I think a big part of it is I'm somewhat concerned that if I share an undeveloped piece of work, it will represent me as an artist and it will sort of reflect poorly on my creative abilities. But I don't think that's accurate and I think that's more of an internal um, obstacle than external. I think it's even a little bit narcissistic of me to think that other people are so tuned into what I'm doing that they would even notice or pay attention to the sort of underdeveloped works of art. Like that's kind of a self-centered way of viewing the world, really. Like it's much more realistic to recognize that nobody knows who I am and nobody cares, to be honest. Like nobody knows that I'm an artist cultivating a practice and sharing it with the world. So there shouldn't be any pressure about sharing it because like, no one is seeing it. No one is engaging with it to begin with. So it is sort of a, it's a way in which you have to really learn how to pick apart your own ideas and beliefs. And you have to sort of challenge yourself and really leave the door open always for the possibility that you're limiting yourself always leave that door open and always consider the possibility like maybe I'm getting in my own way maybe that's what this is maybe it's not a real obstacle in the world maybe this is purely internal and it's my own issue to sort of sort out and that would be a prime example for my own practice whereas like a real world barrier might be something like let's see real world barrier for me would have been something like having the ability to record the music early on because I was just sort of in the habit of expressing music freestyling either in my head or expressing it out loud but I was doing nothing to document it and record it I was doing nothing to sort of improve upon those little ideas that I was having and experimenting with. And so then the obstacle became, well, how do I 
document these freestyles and how do I record my attempts at making music so that I can finish a song and then share it with others. And for me, it started out by getting a recording device, something that was easy to just press play and start talking to. I needed a microphone that was cheap and could store recordings on it, and I made it work. And then later on in the practice, I realized how important it was to have better sounding audio. It didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to be at a level that could be used in a finished work of art, in a finished song. But it needed to be something that was at a good enough audio quality that it like it was something I could listen to for hours and not feel exhausted or sort of turned off by the sharpness of the audio quality because the first recorder I got, oh my goodness, the playback on it was so difficult to listen to because the audio was trash. And so it was like, oh my gosh. It was so disorienting. It was so... It was so difficult to listen to. And so having that recognition of like what tools can I invest in which have an outsized impact on the overall practice. And for me, going from that super cheap piece of crap recording device, upgrading to an Apple Watch and using the voice memos, that was a serious level change. I mean, a night and day shift because all of a sudden not only did I have better audio quality but I also had an audio recorder which I was wearing all the time whereas the other one like I had to put it in my pocket or in my backpack and sometimes I'd forget where I last put it down like well is it still in my backpack or did I leave it in the car or is it like hmm there's sort of that sort of wondering where it went but all of a sudden I was wearing it all the time and I realized that opened up the ability for me to record in the middle of the night. I'd wake up from a dream and still feel a melody in my head. Ding, ding, and then we're off and we're rolling and I'm able to record the art practice. And so it made the ability to enter the practice and document it in order of magnitude easier. It is that like that, that little thing, that little thing of just like how can I how can I improve my practice? How can I sort of turn things around in my own head and identify a new way of thinking or a new tool that already exists which I could apply to my own practice in a beneficial way? And uh, yeah, that's that's one of those changes which I look back on and it's like I'm so grateful I made the change. And I'm sort of kicking myself that I didn't make the switch sooner. I feel like those are the moments where it's like, this is definitely something that really works well. Another would be the wireless lav mic that I'm speaking into now. This was an expensive investment for me. And I realize that's always relative for different creators and different stages of their development. Sometimes a new tool, you just can't, you can't, you can't afford it, you can't make it happen. For me, I'm not at a place where I can make the Sure microphone setup happen. Like I can't afford that at the moment. And so that's sort of out of the realm of possibility, but it is something that I've identified as a future upgrade. Like this is a tool which would improve the audio quality. It would improve the 
total experience of the podcast, but it doesn't have an outsized impact relative to the cost. And so you really have to figure out your own situation. And you really have to be, I would say be patient before you buy anything. Like really think about it. Okay, you've identified a potential tool which may increase your art practice, proficiency, um, level of production in terms of like aesthetics or experience for the viewer. Like maybe you've increased whatever that might be in terms of quality. <laughs> Car's dragging, <laughs> dragging a little something on the underbelly. <laughs> like you have to identify a potential tool which might be a useful investment to make and maybe just like sit with it for a week and really think like is this something that I'm going to use often enough to justify the cost? Is this something which is really going to have the impact that I sort of initially thought it would? And then, is there another way? That's always an important question to ask. Like, maybe there's another option which accomplishes what you're trying to accomplish and also accomplishes another task or improves another part of the practice. And so there's a, there's a way in which if you immediately have an idea of a new tool to invest in and you sort of like rush to find it and order it and like get it in your hands as quickly as possible, you may have missed an opportunity to sort of pair tools into like multi-use applications. And a personal example for me would include this microphone because to me this has multiple applications where I can use it for music making and podcasting. And for me, thinking creatively about how I could use this setup and sort of incorporating well, it comes with two microphones, two lav mics, so I could have a conversation with someone and be wireless, which is incredible. And I could also have the wireless recording of the music, which is how the idea originally started. Like I realized the watch audio was good, but it was a little bit blah, 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 blah. Like I always had to keep my wrist right in front of my mouth to get the best audio um, and it just wasn't allowing the level of freedom I was looking for because I would like to be able to use both of my hands while still recording and I realized I wasn't really able to use my left hand while I was recording because I was so focused on getting better audio quality so to me that was a tool that could improve the art practice, but it wasn't enough to justify the cost on its own. So I started thinking like, well, are there other ways that I could use this? Like, are there other creative applications? And so I sat with it for a few days and all of a sudden, like, it was like, I could totally use this to start the podcast. And then there's no more sort of perceived obstacle of waiting to be able to afford the Shure microphones I can get started with this. And that is what immediately made it a kind of investment which had so much value relative to the cost that it was sort of like that moment convinced me. Like it pushed me over the threshold to say, this is an investment I should make. Another example would be I was looking for a camera tripod. And while I was looking at tripods, I was like, all right, well, 
I don't really want to get the cheapest one because it's going to be difficult to use or it's going to break or it's just not going to have the sort of mobility features I'm looking for. It's going to be super heavy. Um, well, either super heavy or light in a cheap way, not light in like a well-engineered, well-thought-out, interesting materials being used to make it light sort of way. And while I was looking at tripods, I also started thinking, you know, I would really enjoy something which I could use to sort of record nature a little bit more and take some smooth videos of the natural world. And I thought, well, maybe just like a tripod that I can sort of spin and get like a nice pan swing going. But then I stumbled upon a gimbal. That was like, hmm. I wasn't considering that. But then once I saw it and I started seeing the way in which, like that would also be really helpful to have a gimbal to take those really dynamic and smooth nature video shots and also get dynamic videos of the podcast if I had another person to help film. And all of a sudden, I started looking at different tools which were both a gimbal and had the ability to be a tripod. And so now I'm able to sort of creatively blend what I thought would have been two different pieces of kit, two tools. Turns out people have already combined those tools into one. And so again, it was another situation where by allowing myself time to sort of think about other creative ways that I could apply the tool, other ways that I could recognize that I wasn't looking at all the options. Like, you need time. You need to sort of realize that the first idea is not always the best idea, especially when it's not well thought out or complete. And for me, the idea of getting a tripod and then the idea of getting a gimbal or some other like handheld stick device to just sort of make the filming process a little bit smoother. Uh, that became a game changer when I found a, a, a tool that had both the gimbal component and the tripod component. It seemed like that was, uh, again, a situation where it's like, this is a worthwhile investment for me to make because it checks multiple boxes at once and it has an outsized impact in terms of raising the overall video production quality of what I'm making. And to me, the amount of improvement was worth the cost because it had this multi-purpose application. And so I'd highly suggest you really be patient when it comes to investing in new tools and really give yourself time to creatively think about other tools that may exist sort of in a, I guess it's just like a, it's like a multi-tool setup. It's the realization that you could buy one tool or you could buy a set of tools that accomplish multiple things for you at once. And so part of my overall guiding vision is that I'd like to have the ability to record podcasts and music with the least amount of gear possible and keep it relatively lightweight so that I can carry it in a backpack and not feel like it's a big consideration when I'm setting out for, I don't know, 
12 mile adventure in the mountains. Like if I'm going to be adding weight to my pack, I need to make sure that it is worth the weight. Like whatever it is I'm bringing, it needs to, it needs to sort of It used to sort of like punch above its weight, I suppose. <laughs> like, uh, I don't want to be bringing a four-pound tripod with me in the backpack just because it has like a smooth turning head on it so I can get like nice panned vision. And so a smaller device, which has tripod capabilities, but also has gimbal, to me, like when I think about what the weight would be to have a tripod and a gimbal in the backpack versus one tool which serves both purposes, all of a sudden I'm saving weight, I'm saving space, and I'm accomplishing the things that I'm trying to accomplish. And so there's a, there's a total orientation which has been like a guiding principle for me, which is I'm always trying to make sure that when I'm adding new gear, it's something that brings a lot of value to the practice. And it's something which is small enough and light enough to fit in my backpack so that I can bring it with me to a wild location and film. And I realize that's not the case for everyone. Uh, if you know that you're only going to be practicing your art in a studio space, you have a different set of considerations. Maybe you want to find a way to mount a camera that doesn't take up the same amount of space as a tripod. Maybe you want to mount a camera just in one location, like a fixed location, and leave it there with the least amount of space being lost in your studio. And so you'll have to sort of orient what's the, what's the total vision What's the ideal? And then work with that. A sort of a guiding... It's not just a guiding principle. It's sort of like the guiding framework which helps to steer all of the other decisions. And it helps identify what's good or not good about different tools that you're considering because you can really sort of think about everything else you're looking at like it really helped me sort of rule out certain tripods immediately because it was way too big way too heavy maybe too expensive setting a budget for yourself is helpful and sometimes it had features that I would never use and so again it's like really figuring out how to identify the art practice and identify what is what is the goal I'm attempting to achieve I think that's really important to, to like keep keep that at the forefront of your mind And I guess another consideration for myself with the tripod gimbal setup, I was also looking for something that I could set up on my desk in my apartment so that I could film there. And so a really large tripod 
wouldn't really work because if I put that on my desk, it would take up so much space that it would sort of remove the usability of the desk space itself because now there's this, there's this big old tripod stand. And so the sort of tripod gimbal thing I found, because it's primarily a gimbal with just a small tripod attachment, the actual tripod footprint is very small. And so I'm able to tuck it in a corner of my desk, raise it up, and still get sort of the proper tripod height I was looking for without taking up so much space. And so again, like it's, it's sort of orienting, orienting the vision of the practice with the tools that are available, always leaving the door open for the possibility that I have not fully explored all of the options and there could be something better than what I'm thinking about now. So giving yourself that time to sort of explore creatively all the other possibilities and whew, yeah. just on a on a personal note I am very excited about any tool that helps improve my ability to practice and share the practice so much so that there's a part of me that tends to I don't know maybe like spend too much time thinking about tool upgrades and improvements and you need to make sure that the practice is the top priority and focus all the time always trying to do the best you can with what you have that needs to be the primary way of engaging with art and then the tool upgrade is sort of viewed as like a almost like a bonus either in the workflow the quality of production, the maybe automation of monotonous tasks, which you'd rather sort of uh, you'd rather sort of outsource the work a little bit. As long as you're maintaining that sort of initial focus and orientation to do the best you can with what you have, don't feel paralyzed because you're waiting for some tool do the best you can with what you have always 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 do the best you can with what you have and then in that way you're still practicing art as you explore and develop the overall kit of tools which help cultivate the practice and And then when you get those new tools, cultivate gratitude like crazy. I mean, oh, every time I listen to a recording on this microphone, I am so grateful 
that I chose to invest in it. And I'm so grateful that I thought creatively about the different applications for it. And I'm so grateful that the tool upgrade allowed me to do more of my art practice and produce it at a higher quality level. I'm so grateful for it every time I hear it. And I think there's some level of appreciation which you really feel when you've been doing your art practice to the best of your ability with what you have. And then you integrate a new tool into your practice and it levels up your overall practice. It is an incredible feeling. Mainly because you're still doing the practice essentially the same way essentially generating the same momentum that you've been generating but now there's an added element of efficiency or quality which sort of sort of lights up the whole practice in a new way it's like oh my gosh it's It's just fantastic. I mean, that... I don't know how to, I don't know how to talk about it without almost like passing along <laughs> my uh, proclivity to sort of overthink sometimes the tools and the equipment. But it is, it is sometimes a change in the tool set or having the right tool for the job, which does make an incredible change in the overall workflow and ability to produce art. And so I think really keeping that relationship with the practice strong is crucial and fundamental. But it's also important to recognize that sometimes there's a better tool for the job. And sometimes investing in that better tool will have an outsized impact on the overall practice and it's something that is worthwhile. So figuring out that balance, whatever it is for you and your practice, it's very important and it's ongoing because your practice will evolve over time, your financial situation will evolve over time, either making it more or less possible to make those gear investments. And so you really have to go with the flow on this one. And again, this is a situation where you have to figure it out for yourself because other artists, even in the same medium of art that you practice, they may swear by a tool that they use, they may talk it up like crazy, they may not even be getting paid to, to essentially sponsor whatever piece of gear that they're talking about. But you have to remember that what works for someone else may not work for you. And it's really important that you give a lot of consideration to the tools that you're incorporating into your practice. And I'm of the mindset that I only bring in a new tool when I feel like it's either necessary or it has such an incredible sort of uplifting effect that it is worthwhile. And so everyone has to figure out what that is for them like as I said earlier just sticking with the example for me being able to put all of my gear into a backpack 
and walk with it into a wild location, that is a huge consideration for me, which other people may not have. And so the pieces of gear that I'm choosing to invest in and the things which I will be sort of valuing at the highest level, it's motivated by a set of circumstances and like a, it's motivated by an overall vision, which is unique to myself and my own practice. And that's true for really every artist and the tools that they're using. And so, yes, it's helpful to see what other artists in your medium of art are utilizing. It's super helpful to see those tools. And they can sometimes be the exact tool that would incredibly change or alter your practice for good. It's also possible that you may be super excited about a tool that you hear another artist talking about. You rush out and get the tool, and then you come back to your practice and you're like, I don't really have a way of integrating this tool with my practice. I don't really have a use for it. And so, like if you're a woodworker and you have a, a friend who's an electrician and they're telling you about this new like wire stripping pair of pliers and cutters and it's like it's a multi-tool that does all these great things with wire and like oh my gosh you got to have it and the woodworker runs out and buys it and then they get back to their wood shop and they're like i don't have any wires to cut and strip i'm not wiring any receptacles i'm not installing light fixtures like why did i buy this and so you really have to make sure you that you're not getting sort of sucked in by the hype of another creative person developing their own practice with their own unique set of tools you have to figure out what tools are going to work for you and you have to figure out what your overall vision is and make sure that you're not buying tools that are sort of tangential to the practice of art whatever it may be um, an example for me a mistake I made was early on in my music making practice when I was looking for different microphones I decided to buy a sort of middle of the road studio microphone and it was dumb of me to do at the time but it was one of those things where I thought like that's probably what I should do because I'm trying to make music I should probably get a better microphone so I could sort of sing with better audio quality but then I realized I don't want to be a singer I don't want to be a performer I don't want to be in the studio perfecting my voice in the performance of a song that I wrote I would much rather focus on writing songs and having an audio quality good enough to sort of capture the idea of the song and capture the melodies of the lyrics but it doesn't need to be studio level it's way more important to me that it's mobile and I'd I'd sooner accept a lower quality of audio, which is way more mobile than the highest quality of audio that I can afford, but I have to be at my desk, sort of in the studio. I'm sort of like, it was, it was the kind of tool which I'd been convinced I needed it because other songwriters and performing music artists all talked about the importance of having a good studio microphone but again like I was not being true to my own practice when I acquired that tool and I really haven't used it that much 
Like I use this watch microphone. I use this microphone all the time, every single day. The other microphone, uh, I've used it maybe, maybe, I don't even want to say 10 times. Like, I don't know, like five or six times this year I've used that other microphone. And I've had it for a few years now. And like, it gets maybe 10 uses in a year. And each time I use it, I don't even need that level of audio quality. It's just sort of like, well, I have this tool and I sort of feel compelled to use it, but it doesn't really apply to the practice that I'm cultivating. And not only that, it's the kind of thing where I sort of optimized my songwriting process for the audio files that are coming off of the watch and coming off of this lav mic. And then the audio files for the other microphone are totally different because I have to record with that in Logic Pro and it's just a totally different workflow. And so it sort of ends up being where if I use that microphone for songwriting, I don't eventually get back to listening to those recordings for a very long time, a very long time, because it's just sort of, it's outside of the normal workflow and it's not really applicable to the practice that I'm attempting to cultivate in this moment. And so when I think about, and I try not to do this to myself because it's like, it's sort of a, I don't know, like I can't change it. I can't go back in time and not make that silly investment. But sometimes a part of me thinks about all the other things I could have purchased with the money that I put into that microphone. Like I could have made audio improvements tripod improvements, camera improvements. I could have done all these other things which I would have used every single day. But instead, I bought the wrong tool. I mean, that's really all it is. Like, I bought a tool thinking I would use it based on how other people in my same medium of art were using it. But sure enough, my art practice was different. My art practice had a different foundational vision and the way in which I approached the practice was different and so I just never I never used it I don't really have a use for it now and <sighs> oh I guess that's that's probably a big part of the reason why now I sort of force myself to be patient and take time when I think about buying a new tool, I'm like, well, hold on. Is this another microphone situation where I'm gonna be like overly excited to get this new microphone and then I'm never gonna use this new tool because it doesn't really fit in the overall practice that I'm cultivating and it doesn't really fit the overall vision. <sighs> Nobody else can give me the right answer for that. And partly the reason I ended up making that wrong decision is because I listened to other songwriters and music artists essentially giving the advice of, well, yeah, you gotta upgrade your microphone to the best ability, to the best level that you can afford. So for me, that highest level was getting a microphone that required the sort of studio recording setup. But then I realized I'm way more musically creative in a wild place and I cannot record with this new microphone in a wild place. So I was back to that goofy 
handheld recording device with terrible audio. I was like, damn, swing and a miss. So really make sure that you have properly oriented your vision of your unique art practice before you run out and start accumulating all kinds of tools and gear which you may not need or use. So I think that's why I'm trying to just say like, play it safe, be patient when it comes to investing in new equipment and do everything you can to think about how it's going to be used. Like what's the real application of this tool in the day-to-day art practice? How often will I use this tool? How does this improve the practice either in its efficiency or its quality or its ease of entering the practice, like whatever the tool may be doing for you, you really need to make sure that you're going to use it for its intended purpose. And you need to make sure that it's not being motivated for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Don't go out and get a tool just because you think you need it to participate in whatever the medium of art might be. Like, slow down breathe a little bit think a whole lot and then if after you've given it some time to think about it and you've considered how you're going to use it and integrate this new tool with your practice only then should you start taking the steps to actually pay for it to make that investment and it is helpful to view it as an investment because you are putting money towards the improvement of your art practice. And if your art practice is properly oriented, it has a never-ending time horizon, meaning you could practice this art for a very long time, essentially for the rest of your life. I realize there are art practices that require certain physical abilities or cognitive abilities, which may not be with you your whole life. So there may be some other sort of time horizon which you're working within and that's cool like I get that but I think the majority of art practice it could be oriented for sort of a lifelong practice and so if you're thinking even in terms of the next 30 50 years it changes the way in which you approach investing in equipment and tools because it's like all right is this something that will be beneficial to me for the next 30 years? Will I be using this piece of equipment for the next 30 years, assuming I don't break it? And if the answer is yes, well, all of a sudden, that completely changes my relationship to the cost. Because it's a large upfront cost, but maybe I'll be using it for the next 30 years. And so the cost per use will be minuscule. It'll be fractions of a penny because I'll be using it all the time all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Whereas if it's a tool that's sort of like, you know, I don't really need this now, but someday I'd like to have it, and it sort of adds an upgrade to the overall experience of my art practice, but it's maybe not highly impactful. Okay, well maybe we add that to the list for future investments. Maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, if we have the financial ability to invest in that piece of kit, then we can do it. But it's really important to look at things on that extended time horizon because sometimes you might be thinking, well, I'll just get the cheapest thing now. 
I'll get the cheapest version of whatever tool I'm looking at now because I don't really want to spend money now. But maybe if you spend a little bit more to get a higher quality piece of gear, to get a better made tool, it may be the sort of thing where by spending more up front, you're able to use it for a much longer period of time. And so you're getting a much greater value return from that investment. And so having that proper orientation is helpful. And again, that's another reason why you should really think it through and put a lot of effort into considering all the options and always leave the door open for the possibility that you just have not explored all the options and leave the door open that there's something else out there which could be better than what you've found or that what you initially think is most good. And like, you have to figure that out on your own. It's entirely a personal journey to sort of experiment and play and test it out. And some things are going to work and some things aren't going to work and how you handle that failure is sort of up to you. So if you can minimize the cost of your failures, you can make more mistakes at a greater pace and essentially be learning with more efficiency and feel like every time you fail, you're not losing hundreds or thousands of dollars because you made a failure. So if you can lower the cost of each failure to a point where the financial cost of failure is not even a consideration, that is ideal. For me, the cost of failure when it comes to songwriting is very low because it's just a recording. And the cost per recording is so minuscule at this point that it's not even a consideration in my mind. Like, I can just keep making new recordings. And so if I make a mistake in one, if it's not very good audio quality, if I try and stretch an idea into a song and it doesn't work, like, I haven't lost money. There's just another mistake and another opportunity to learn and grow. And so figuring out how to figuring out how to make as many mistakes as possible with whatever your art practice is in an economical way. Like that is, that's part of the practice at scale. And so some forms of practice have a greater cost per attempt, but there are also ways in which you could probably identify maybe like skills to work on or creative ways of using scrap material to practice whatever skill it is you're trying to develop for a lower cost. So I'm trying to think of an example. Like maybe if you're, like what's an expensive medium of art to practice? Let's say your medium of art is um, remodeling and rebuilding old cars with new components to sort of like sort of refurbish cars like if that's your art practice you definitely don't want to go out and start buying Porsches like that's not a good way to start the practice you should start out getting the cheapest most rusted out beat up cars that you can manage to find and sort of have the ability to get lesser quality equipment in it to really practice the whole experience of 
finding a car for sale, going through the transaction process, transporting a broken down car on a trailer to your workshop, taking it apart, diagnosing all the problems, figuring out how to order the pieces that fit the right car. Like there's so much that you can learn for a lower cost as long as you're willing to sort of identify that cost per failure idea. Like how can I afford to make more mistakes and learn more? And a lot of that has to do with lowering the cost of failure, lowering the cost of practice. And then when you do end up going out to buy that Porsche that you want to refurbish and then sell to someone to drive around and enjoy, you've already practiced changing out old brakes and you've already practiced hammering off a rusted rotor that's just stuck on the axle. Like you've, you've sort of worked out different things which then give you a greater chance for success when the materials cost more and when there's more on the line if you do fail. So I think that's, I don't know if that's an example which really articulates the point I'm trying to make. Uh, but finding ways of lowering the cost for each attempt is really beneficial, really beneficial. Because the ideal is that you can practice really as much as you can and not feel like you're incurring a large cost. Um, another example, somewhat less artistic, but something which comes to mind is astronauts. You wouldn't want to train an astronaut in an actual rocket actually flying a mission off planet partly because the cost of failure is so goddamn high that if something goes wrong, you could lose the entire rocket, you could lose the entire crew, and like, well, now what? Now you have to start over from scratch rebuild all of it but instead you can develop training facilities to sort of mimic the experience of being in space you can create training to mimic all of the computer interactions which have to be learned all the switches to be flipped you can do all of that in a simulator and then the cost per failure goes way down because you can have all these different like possible malfunctions and alarms going off and you can test it without actually blowing up a rocket ship. And so lowering the cost of failure and making it easier to get into the practice, which is another thing. It's much easier to just climb into a simulator and run some tests and fail 20 times than it is to get in 20 different rocket ships, fly 20 different missions, and have 20 different like scenarios presented to you where then you try and problem solve in real time. Like it's obviously a better idea in that case to get in the simulator and train when the cost is much lower. And then when it's game time, when you do get in that real rocket and you do fly that full upright mission, 
you've been training the fundamentals, you've been practicing all the healthy habits, you've been learning all the switches and dials that need to be flipped, you've been learning what all the alarms mean and the different combinations, and now you're ready to go. Like now you're really ready to go. And I think that sort of mentality with your art practice is very beneficial. It's very beneficial. I am hoping that the audio of this filming location is an improvement from the last two episodes in the green belt. Um, I'm certainly enjoying this. I mean, it's been relatively peaceful and um, yeah, it's little improvements that accumulate over time and little adjustments and I, like the cost of failure in terms of having really loud insect noise in the first two episodes it did not cost much to learn that mistake and I have no audience like expecting a certain quality of performance I have no I have no uh I really have no downside <laughs> to just making mistakes and failing because it's the opportunity to get better and it's the ability to learn new ways of being in the practice and so alright I can identify that I don't want to be recording a podcast in the green belt. There's too much external noise. But I do still want to record outside. So how can I find a better outdoor recording location with just a little bit less like constant sound? And so far this has been way better. I'm closer to the camera. I have a feeling the lighting situation is also better. And so like it's this It's this sort of process of shaping and feeling out. Does this work? 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 I don't know, but we're going to try it all and see what happens. And over time, it's going to be getting better and better and better and better and better and better. And then maybe after I've made 400 episodes or something, I'll actually have some like dialed in points of practice and the overall process of recording the podcast sharing the podcast and sort of going through the publishing um, steps like how do I go from this place now all the way to a place where this video recording with the audio is available to be observed on all the various platforms where people enjoy podcasts and so I have to appreciate my position as a beginner lean into the mistakes and pay attention so that I'm improving the mistakes and making it better a little bit every time. Because if I can get better a little bit every time for 400 episodes, I mean, 
it's sort of inevitable that eventually someone will be interested purely based on the quality of podcast that I'm producing. And so it's sort of a no-brainer, but it also requires a lot of inner momentum and commitment to the vision, discipline to show up and practice, especially, especially when no one is watching, when nobody cares. I still need the discipline to sit down and record a long form conversation with someone else or with essentially just a camera and whoever else might be watching. I need to be able to get into the practice over and over and over again and extract value in ways other than viewership or monetary return. Because the viewership monetary return of this podcast, the odds are it just won't happen for hundreds of episodes. It's just like there's, there's so much material online already and there's so much new material being shared every day. And there's also so much that I haven't learned yet. So it's sort of like a, it's a natural order of the less good new podcast gets way less views than the well-oiled, finely tuned, experienced podcast, which has been doing it for a few years. And so I need to make sure that I'm not comparing myself as a beginner to those who are already established. And I need to make sure that I'm not looking for value in terms of viewership numbers or monetary return from the podcast in any form because it's just not going to happen like I have to really make sure that I'm extracting value from the process of making it and then I need to make sure that the process of sharing it is not so difficult that I'm turned off from doing it it needs to be streamlined enough that it's like well I've already made the podcast and I've already extracted a lot of value from that process and so now well, it's just a few steps to actually publish it and share it with others. And in that way, I can accumulate experience and lessons learned while also sharing the total process. And then for anyone interested, you can sort of see the overall evolution of the podcast through time. And I mean, the prime example would be the number one podcast in the world, the Joe Rogan Experience. The first episodes of that are like comically like comically produced in terms of their quality. <laughs> like it's you compare that to what it is now, and it's not obvious at all that the current podcast grew out of where it started. If you were to look at like the first episode that Joe Rogan put together for his podcast and like the most recent episode, watch them back to back, you'd be like, how in the hell? Did this thing, which is now the number one podcast in the world, and like, so, I mean, he's getting more views than like established cable news at this point. And then you look at where it started. Oh my goodness. Grainy camera, terrible audio quality, the very little direction or flow to the conversation. 
like no real setup. It was just like a office spare bedroom kind of space. Like it was amateur hour, but he did it for the love of the game. He wasn't doing it for viewership or money. And so he kept going and he just kept going and he 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 kept making those little adjustments along the way. And those little adjustments accumulate and they start to compound interest. And it's gotten to, it's gotten to a point where those adjustments and that compounding interest has led him to become the number one podcaster in the world and someone who will probably go down in history as like a, a media mogul. Like he's, he's changing the landscape of information interaction among people and the way in which people sort of crave long-form conversations and are able to find them now more and more in the world because of how that sort of slow burn process combined with discipline, like keep showing up and doing it, keep showing up and getting into the practice and make sure that your motivation, like I, I can't say this enough, it's true for the art practice, no matter what it might be, your motivation has to be internal in a way that is sustained. Like you have to have that sustained motivation which is not reliant upon how other people receive it. It's not reliant upon how many views it gets on TikTok. Like you gotta push that so far out of your head it's not even a consideration. And you have to orient yourself with like how am I extracting value from the process of making art? How does the practice benefit my life? Focus on that, be grateful for that, and allow that gratitude to be your fuel to make more and to engage more. And then in a few years time, maybe all of a sudden you start earning income from it and then it's purely a bonus because you've already found a way to extract value from your art practice and all these other ways. If then you start making money, as like it's purely added bonus. It's not gonna motivate you even more to make more art. You've already found your motivation to make more art. If anything, that income will give you more freedom to make more art. Maybe if you start making money, you can take less shifts at your day job. Maybe you can quit your job entirely and just focus on making art. But even if that's the case, the motivation still has to be unrelated to the money, unrelated to the viewership, and driven entirely through other areas of value. And I can already tell based on the amount of value that I'm able to extract from my music art practice, from this podcast practice, from all the different areas of my life that I'm being creative. When I look at how I'm extracting value, it makes me really excited about the next time I show up to practice because I'm only focused on what it is that I'm able to get out of the art practice and so far it's making me a better person in so many different ways it's making me a better person and I'm genuinely excited and driven by the idea of getting better every single day get better a little bit every day a little bit every day a little bit every day and then when I share it and three people see it 
like it doesn't bother me in the slightest because that's not where I'm extracting value. I'm extracting all my value from the process, the action of making the art and the experimentation and the play and the exploration of myself. Like there's so much value being extracted from the practice. I just feel like it's the most important piece to consider. And it's something which is sort of easy to forget in our current society. Because you can go viral before you've established a good art practice, and now all of a sudden you're trying to like go viral again. You're trying to repeat that sort of social success, and maybe that kind of stress sort of flattens out your creativity a little bit and maybe it sort of pulls away from the truly easygoing free-flowing ability to just engage with your art practice because now you're thinking about well my last video got millions of views and now I'm going to try and do it again but it, like that's the wrong view fundamentally it's the wrong view it's the wrong focus you have to orient all of the inspiration and motivation to work there has to be a value extraction which comes from the process of making it not the process of selling it and that will fundamentally change how you approach the art practice and it will fundamentally change the ways in which you relate to yourself and to any potential audience in the future because if you're trying to make material for just like getting viral uh, viewership numbers like it's bullshit what you're making is crap and what you're thinking about what you're choosing to value is crap it's not going to make you a better person it's not going to give you any value in a real sense if it gives you any value at all it is entirely superficial and you're extracting value based on the amount of people who view your material don't do it. Just don't do it. Find what is truly valuable. <laughs> find what is true, truly valuable about your art practice. And be grateful for that. And be motivated by that. And be driven to show up and do more practice because of the inner value that you're able to receive. Do not place a heavy weight on the external whatever. That's sort of like a guaranteed way for your art practice to fall apart. I think it's really important that from the beginning, you're trying to build a strong foundation for a lasting art practice. Again, think about it as an art practice that you want to engage with for the rest of your life. Endless learning opportunity endless potential to be creative and make new things and it's essentially an infinite game like there's no final destination to get to it just keeps going it keeps expanding and opening and when you start playing an infinite game and you're motivated by the value that you extract from the process of playing instead of being motivated by any potential return or reward you're going to play the game way better than anyone else. 
and you're going to play longer and with more discipline and you're going to show up and work even when no one cares, even when no one's watching you. You're going to still show up and try and get better because you genuinely want to improve your own practice, not because you're trying to get more views. And so it is sort of like a... It's a somewhat counterintuitive perspective, I suppose. Because so many kids nowadays recognize that being an internet influencer is a possibility to earn a living. But if they enter into a creative practice with the intention of getting paid to share it online, it seems like that's sort of the wrong approach. And it's much better to figure out what art practice do I want to engage with and develop for the next 50 years of my life? What ways can I make the practice valuable in my life in such a way that just by doing the practice, I'm becoming better in some form? Whether that's emotional release, some sort of therapeutic engagement with art maybe it's the ability to sort of externalize really difficult emotions and experiences that are sort of too in your face like all right how can I like put this out of myself and work on it in some tangible form maybe it's the ability to reflect and to pause and to cultivate peace maybe it's purely meditative maybe it's any number of things but you have to extract value from the practice and the process. Be unconcerned about how people are relating to it, how many people are relating to it. Be unconcerned about how much money you may be making from it. Like, push that so far away. Push that out of your head entirely, if possible. Focus on cultivating a healthy practice. And a healthy total life. Like, make sure that you're not so committed to this practice because of the one thing it does for you that you start to neglect the other areas of your life. Like, you have to have that sort of healthy integration with everything that's going on. And making sure you're still exercising, eating healthy foods, engaging in social interaction learning new skills, new ideas, new places, new learning really anything and everything. And I think it's also helpful when you're cultivating an art practice to really maintain the perspective of a beginner and as a student and I really like to assume anytime I walk into a room of people that I'm the dumbest person in the room and I should be learning from every person in there. That perspective shifts my mind to a point where I'm always thinking about questions that I can ask people, assuming that they know more than I do and there's something I can learn from them. If I were to walk into a room and assume I was the smartest person there, I'd be much less likely to ask questions. I'd be much less likely to show my curiosity and intrigue in a person. But I find that when I 
choose to view myself as the dumbest, least informed person in the room, my curiosity peaks and my willingness to ask questions and genuinely listen to the response is on a heightened level because I've convinced myself I'm the dumbest person in the room. What's the best thing a dumb person can do? Like shut your mouth and listen to smarter people and learn and grow as a student. So having that mentality, it's a subtle thing. It's a, it's a, it's a very nuanced shift in perspective which will completely change how you relate to other people and how you choose to interact and how you carry yourself in a room. And so there's a, there's sort of an interplay happening there where I'm able to view myself as the dumbest person in the room without losing all confidence in my own abilities. So there's sort of a fine line. Like I'm not breaking myself down to view myself as the lowest member of the room but rather I'm sort of elevating everyone else who's there to such a high point where it's like, this is incredible. Like there are all these brilliant people here with the potential to teach me so much. So then I'm way more enthusiastic about asking questions, showing my genuine curiosity, admitting to the things I don't know, and allowing other people to open up and express what it is that they've learned in their own life. And... Uh, Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. There's been a noticeable increase in traffic, as well as some more traffic in the park. Um, it's just after five o'clock now. So I think I'm gonna wrap this up. Uh, lock in episode three of the Artist at Work podcast, and I'm gonna get ready for jujitsu in about an hour and 15 minutes so I've got plenty of time plenty of time head back to my apartment maybe eat a little bit hydrate put on my gear go get submitted and choked out <laughs> again another situation where I show up in the room sort of assuming that I'm the least competent grappler there and it shifts the perspective and I'm asking questions with everyone and I'm constantly trying to learn and express my own lack of understanding and knowledge and I find that most people are genuinely excited to talk about what they're passionate about and they're genuinely willing and open to share and teach people who are curious about what they're passionate about and so there's something about placing yourself on a low seat which sort of stimulates curiosity and it sort of improves the ability to be a student. Like 
always, 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 always be a student in the best way possible. And so there's a... There's a way in which orienting your own perspective, <laughs> orienting your own perspective is highly important. It's very nuanced. <laughs> and the train's gonna honk a few more times. Yep, yep. Let's get a few more in there, buddy. Mm -hmm. Those are like short ones, just a little. I want another long one though. I feel like there's one coming. Just little toots. Come on, give me, give me a long, give me a long one. Give me a long one to end the podcast on. We're not going to get that long train horn I was looking for. Oh, well. I feel really good finishing the third episode. That already uh, puts me, I believe that's already in the top 10% of all podcasters to get to three episodes if that statistic is still true and if it's still true then it is putting me in the top 1% if I can get to 21 episodes so I think for me I'll probably still set a few more um, like thresholds to aim at and hit for targets that are a little bit more attainable. Uh, just because going from 3 to 21, that's a really big step. So I think maybe going from 3 to 10, I think that's like 10 is the next target. And then I think I could go from 10 to 21. So my next target, and I think I should really have like a, some personal reward, like a day off from work, a day at Barton Springs, maybe like a, I don't know, an extra large joint. <laughs> that that's that's the motivation that works for me. Um, you know, then that's probably like a blunt. I should roll a blunt for myself and a friend. And we should go like watch the sunset somewhere and just have a good time, a celebration for the tenth podcast. And so again, to wrap it up to what I was talking about earlier, figuring out how to orient yourself and motivate yourself to keep going and sometimes offer yourself a reward that works and be honest with yourself. And I can honestly say that that's like rolling a fat blunt and hanging out with a friend is something which I enjoy doing and I don't do it enough. And so for me, it is a reward to do that. And I'm really grateful for those moments. So... <sighs> On to the next one. You know, thanks for anyone who made it this far and is still watching. 
don't forget to practice, practice, practice. Peace out. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. How to do this? Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. It is for these reasons that I regard the decision last year to shift our efforts in space from low to high gear as among the most important decisions that will be made during my incumbency in the office of the presidency.